Hi everyone, and welcome back to Parallel Worlds. This is part two of my interview with Amy Butt. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I would recommend going back and starting there. We discuss a few things here that refer back to earlier parts of our conversation. This part of the interview is a bit less polished, a bit more roughly cut than the last, but still, Amy is so articulate in the way that she talks about the construction of sci-fi worlds and how they impact on our sense of self and the worlds we can build ourselves that you probably won't notice my terrible editing. So, please do enjoy part two of this interview with Amy Butt. This podcast and the following message are sponsored by A Strange Sense of Alienation. Look around you. It's all there as normal. But wait. Look closer. Anything seem a little strange? Look closer still. Why, the whole world is not what it seems. A Strange Sense of Alienation. What is and what isn't. And who are you to decide? I like this this term that you're using, like a science fictional mode of, of looking at things. And again, going back to your sort of your work in architecture, with architecture in general, I found sort of like teaching in architecture schools, working, you know, I did my PhD in an architecture school. Um, the, the conception that a lot of people have when you talk to them about architecture who are non-architects are that it's this process that happens elsewhere. It's something that you have to study for a long time to be able to do. And, you know, um, I think that that popular image of the star architect is a really sort of toxic one because it's this sort of Howard Rourke, um, the protagonist from Ayn Rand's novel, The Fountainhead, later made into a film, projects this image of somebody who is headstrong and just makes architecture. They have to make art exactly in the way that they make it. And that's so different from what architecture I think should be. And I think probably you, you share opinions on this as well. Um, that it's something that should be participated in. It's something that affects people's lives. It's something that has the great potential for good, but also the great potential for bad. But the best way that we can mediate this conversation is to involve people. But the, the approach that you have to sci-fi is that it's it's a series of conversations that you're having almost with yourself, taking elements of your own life, projecting them into works of fiction that are not entirely complete, that you assume are a full world, that um that the author has created in its entirety for you to consume but in order for you to actually access that full world you have to bring your own you know the things that you saw when you were a kid or elements of films that you've seen or you know whatever else it is from your own kind of memory baggage you project into that thing and then through reframing those snippets in in a sort of new context you're able to reflect on them and see the new and the different and the weirdness that just exists within your everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think for me, one of the really wonderful things about seeing architecture as a, a social and participatory art form is that it gives you the opportunity to engage with those same kind of processes of rediscovery that other people are going through as well. So while I might be able to understand how I react to 
uh, a terraced street and the particular cultural readings that I bring with me from my upbringing to begin to work with someone else who might interpret that in a in an entirely different way is a fantastic opportunity to make my own experience strange to myself by really acknowledging how different someone else's understanding of a particular place might be. For me, then, that also comes into a really important understanding of architecture, which is um, to kind of dismantle uh, the assumption that your own understanding of the world is complete or correct in some way. And to understand that there are as many readings of a particular place as there are people who might want to inhabit it. So that the role of architecture then becomes one of discussion, of drawing out differences of interpretation and the kind of different models of what people might want to exist and to begin to be able to try and find something which might uh, enable many of those different social constructions to happen within it. Which I think also comes back to the the point that you were making earlier about agency, um, which I think is so vital that in the conception of the architect in the fountainhead as this lone genius, um, they are deemed to have absolute control over the built environment uh, and they are the only person who is able to enact their singular vision. And I think that the reality of architecture is thankfully much messier than that, which is definitely a good thing, but perhaps not messy enough and that in my own practice anyway, I aspire to distribute that agency as much as possible to people who have a far better understanding of the existing situation than I as an architect coming from the outside can ever do and who might be able to envisage new ways of living or working in a particular place that are beyond my possibilities of imagination. Wow. That's, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah, a it's, utopian goal, but yeah. you know, you've got to have something to strive for. <laughs> not, not purely a technical discipline that you sort of, you learn <laughs> the rules and then you do them, <laughs> but that you sort of, it's a continual process of learning and um, refolding other people's experiences into the thing that you're doing. And something that we are all doing constantly, you know, in our decision about where to put a chair within our living room. That's a, that's a work of architecture. We've remade that space and the social possibilities within it. Um, so we're all equipped to be able to uh, consider ourselves as architects. It's just that it's not uh, normally framed in that way and that the the kind of larger decision-making about the built environment isn't placed, isn't kind of as equally distributed as it could be. So then within sci-fi, it sounds like sci-fi is a, mm-hmm. a useful metaphor for you to to frame architecture and to think about different modes of being and different modes of participating in these things. Mm-hmm. But then for people who aren't necessarily in the sort of the architectural community, how how does sci-fi act? What's the what's the sort of outcome that that comes from reading something and getting this strange or this sense of estrangement that you get from reading Pamela Zolin's uh, Heat Death of the Universe and mm. sort of thinking, hang on, my my house is really weird. This cornflakes packet is just totally bizarre. <laughs> the strong sense I get from talking to you is that, that you're you're after a sense of empowerment. And how do we then enact the empowerment that comes from those different readings of things and these different framings Mm. of of Mm. context of our lives in other places the main thing that science fiction offers me is a is an understanding that the world as it is now is not the only way that the world can be so there is no such thing as a kind of default normal state the kind of idea of someone 
defending a certain set of practices because that's the way we've always done it is uh, a really poor defense. So I think what science fiction offers to the people who engage with it in that particular way is an ability to kind of step back and say, well, I can see how weird it is that we do these things in this particular way. And I think that that becomes particularly important when we're talking about challenges like uh, climate catastrophe, for example, which require us to kind of critically re-examine fundamental everyday practices and to acknowledge that they have great importance on the way in which we live within the world. Um, And so I think science fiction can be really valuable when thinking about those kind of enormous but dispersed issues which are really kind of hard to grapple with in everyday life in climate fiction for example uh, you have novels which deal with extraordinarily long time spans so that we can begin to think about how an action we take today has consequences for a hundred thousand years into the future but they can also at the same time talk about the intimacy of different people's experiences of climate change globally so there's a fantastic novel that i've read recently called the waste tide um, which is a near future novel which looks at people who live and work on one of the pacific garbage patches sorting through plastic and e-waste and melting that back down to be resold it's a story which is eminently kind of plausible within our existing (laughs) patterns of consumption but the experiences that it forces you to confront, you realise are experiences which are already existing within the world. You know, there are already people who are having to undertake that kind of labour under those kinds of working conditions. So reading a book like that forces me as a reader to confront not only the kind of patterns of consumption that I'm undertaking, which would produce this waste product, which might lead to this future, which is being depicted. But it also forces me to confront the working patterns, which I found so horrific when depicted in fiction and realise that those do exist within the world. And it, it begins to demand of me that I use whatever agency I have to begin to reject the fact that that is the way it has always been done and that is the default normal of the world and to begin to demand some kind of change for that. Yeah. This is, it's actually mm. something that I, um, I find really hard to teach. Uh, like a, a lot mm. of my personal teaching is about sort of this idea of unpicking how we got to where we are now and trying to Mm. reframe it as a strange thing because the the Mm. world we live in the financial systems that we have the housing that we live in every facet of our world has been constructed over a long period of time and is Mm. very specific nothing is nothing is fixed and nothing is um completely predetermined in the way that it's going to run Yet sort of Mm. we're born into the world and we sort of take everything that's there as being just the way that things are done. And so Mm. your your reading of sci-fi sounds like a really useful tool to be able to sort of go, oh, hang on, there is an alternative to this system or that system or whatever Mm. else it is. But also the scale of things like climate catastrophe are so huge that in some way that we need um, sort of like a, a human scale parable that takes us to one place or another i want to ask you actually again another big 
catastrophe at the moment is um, to do with migration from war zones and potential climate migration and this kind of stuff. And when we were talking before, you uh, you brought up the novel Exit West. I wonder if you could just um, describe a little bit about the premise and the way that that creates this sense of empathy in a really interesting way. Yeah, so Exit West, written by Moshin Hamid, it's set in a contemporary society and there are doorways which start appearing within the world. So there's a some form of transformation, we never find out what, which means that certain doorways that already exist, um, you know, a doorway into your kitchen or a cupboard under the stairs, um, become transformed into portals. Um, and these doorways are generally doorways which led into a dark space. So the moment you step into shadow, it's kind of an, a new threshold. And those doorways right. transport people to another place um, within the world, generally into a vacant room somewhere. So you might step through the doorway in your kitchen and end up in uh, an apartment in Paris. And the really fascinating thing about this about this novel is the way um, it's constructed that people don't know where it is that they will end up when they step through these doors. So you have no idea whether or not you're going to end up in that beautiful apartment in Paris or whether you might end up in the middle of a war zone, for example. Um, so typically the types of people who choose to step through those doors are people who are already being confronted by great risk to their lives, who are going through particular periods of kind of violent upheaval in their society, things like that. So it's generally people who might choose to migrate or to become refugees within our existing society. And uh, it essentially makes that process of migration instantaneous. Um, But it also means that the people who step through the door have no knowledge of where it is that they will end up whether they will be separated from their family whether or not they will find themselves somewhere worse than they have left they'll be leaving behind families communities of support language that they speak knowledge of a culture and stepping into something entirely unknown where they might lose everything which had previously given them value or defined themselves and so We follow in the novel one young woman as she's kind of moves through these doors at various periods in her life and the decisions that she makes before stepping through and the choice of what she's risking when she chooses to give up the life that she knows, however uncomfortable that might be or however potentially life-threatening that might be for for some unknown future. And the thing that uh, it really brings home for, for me as a reader is that that is exactly the choice that all people who choose to migrate or to um, to become refugees are already making this kind of wild choice of between a, a known existing threat and an unknown possibility. And you begin to, through the kind of empathetic understanding of this young woman's decision-making process, begin to understand just what it is that she gives up every time she steps through the door and how painful a choice that is and for me certainly it gave me a way of thinking about migration and asylum seeking which kind of acknowledged the enormity of loss that went along with that um yes i found it an incredibly powerful novel for those things for those reasons yeah it's sort of as a as a person who's grown up in um 
yeah, in relatively comfortable circumstances and so on, the idea of suddenly just being transported irreversibly to somewhere that I would have no knowledge of necessarily, no choice in where I was going, nothing like that, um, is, is a million miles away. You know, um, I've, I've relocated throughout my life, but generally out of choice. And I, I would imagine that projecting yourself into those circumstances and, and sort of seeing those things creates a, a very strange sense of dislocation and sort of reflection back on your own life. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I really like about the novel is uh, the intimacy of it because we are following you know, one one kind of central character and then the, the, the uh, various characters that she has particular relationships with, we're never given the global overview of you know, how this affects geopolitical relationships or economics. Instead, we live through the mundane realities of her kind of struggle to find a mobile phone that works and then how, who is she going to call back home and how is she going to reestablish perhaps some kind of connection to the life that she used to live. And I think it's it kind of beautifully for me demonstrates the potential of science fiction to not only kind of ask a very big what if question, but to then really play through the implications that that would have on us as individuals and the way in which we emotionally connect to one another, that it doesn't necessarily need to be seen as this kind of extraordinary external event which has created these portals and that we kind of understand the mechanics of it in some way it's enough that we understand the implications it has for this one person in this one particular moment the things that you generally take away um that the affecting parts of of books and films and things like that generally aren't the fancy bits (laughs) the the mechanism it sounds like behind the portals is not really important as much as the the social ramifications that it has for the individual characters that you're you're following through and no. this kind of thing, <laughs> it sounds like just a fascinating book. I, I really um, I can't wait to read it. Thank you for mm. the, the yeah, yeah. Thank you for switching me onto it. Well, I have to thank uh, in turn the London Science Fiction Research Collective, uh, which I am a, a joyful part of. Um, and our current reading theme this year is Beyond Borders. And it was one of the recommendations of that reading group. Um, and and did in, in the reading group provoke quite a bit of debate about genre definition as well, and how uh, slippery the edges of science fiction are when we aren't told the mechanics of, of something like these portals. This podcast is sponsored by The Absent Paradigm. The Absent Paradigm will provide the fiction, you fill in the gaps. Can I jump onto something maybe more fanciful, less less literary perhaps? But I wanted to ask you a little bit about Janelle Monet. So for anyone <laughs> listening to this, um, Amy was interviewed on Radio 3, uh, BBC Radio 3 recently, and talked about Janelle Monet, mm. but they cut it out of the interview. Heartbreaking. <laughs> As a means of sort of bringing this conversation back to exactly what our 
course is about. The idea of Parallel Worlds is it's a course that looks at the practice of world building mm. and the the various methods and mechanisms and tools and techniques that you can use to create worlds around uh, fictional worlds and stories and this kind of thing, but taking from all over the place, from sci-fi, from corporate ideology from sort of psyops within military operations and all sorts of places like that and then brings those things back to enable practitioners to create worlds around their own work which creates this air of mystique or some sort of added experience that you get from from participating in somebody's work and Jeanne Monet sounds like an artist who does all of that and more yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah, uh, well, as you say, I was utterly heartbroken to have my slightly fangirl raving about Janelle Monáe edited out. I, I understand the decision-making process, but it was still a hard thing to cope with. Yeah, I think the work of Janelle Monáe is absolutely fascinating in referencing some of the things that you spoke about earlier when you were trying to describe to students how to question uh, pre-existing society as something which can be challenged as something which isn't an a priori stable state and perhaps suggest that history might not have had to work out the way it did and that things could be different. I see Janelle Monet's work as a really important part of that as a piece of Afrofuturist science fiction and in that way it kind of resonates with a lot of the other Afrofuturist or African futurist work depending on who's speaking about it, which seeks to establish kind of counter-narratives about what history could have been, what about what history is, and the idea that we have of history as a singular sequence of events. So there's a really wonderful theorist, Kodro Eschen, who talks about Afrofuturism as assembling counter-memories that um, contest the historical archive. So as a way of challenging what we understand as the kind of linear notion of history. And he talks about sonic fictions as being a really particularly important part of that. So he talks about the work of people like Sun Ra, who's a Afrofuturist jazz musician and filmmaker who also constructed a whole life work around himself being an inhabitant of, I think it was Saturn, who had come to Earth and was a remnant of a ancient Egyptian civilization which had achieved space travel. He has now kind of come back as a representative of that civilization. And he he made uh, not just albums, but films and, and all sorts of different ways of expressing this. Absolutely fantastic films. Space is the place. The thing I really like about that is that it kind of um, it really plays with uh, notions of history in really interesting ways that there's this idea of ancient Egyptian civilization and the ideas of technology that come into that and the ideas about oppression and enslavement that are kind of woven into it in really insightful and uh, nuanced ways but it's all expressed through this kind of exuberant and joyful brightly colored loud kind of chaotic music and film and I, I definitely see um and I know that Janelle Monet's work has been spoken about in in reference to that as constructing a full history within itself and really exploring the possibilities of sound as a an art form which can engage with people, which can kind of prompt particular emotional reactions and construct narratives for us. 
So for those who don't know, Janelle Monae's work across several different albums can be, in certain lights, interpreted as being part of one single narrative, which looks at the rise of particular uh, cyborgs and uh, later on robotic individuals and follows the narrative path of one character, Jane, and then another subsequent character, Cindy Mayweather, who is a cyborg. And kind of throughout all of the songs on her albums, there are references back to these particular moments where people are beginning to be implanted with kind of cyborg components. Then there's a suggestion of a particular um, the enslavement of a cyborg people in some way and their f- uh, further revolution and uprising. And it's non-sequential. So the her latest album is one of the earlier parts of the story. And one of her earlier albums, Arc Android, is the one which talks about the cyborg revolution in a bit more detail. And what I really, I really love about this particular series of albums is the way in which when you're listening to them, you can engage with each individual song, each individual piece of music as a kind of standalone moment. But you're kind of invited to consider how they might form parts of a bigger narrative. So how they might be thought of as fragments which begin to build a larger whole in a way which I think for me resonates a lot with the ways in which I see elements of description in in the text of a novel for example but here the novel itself has been fragmented and scattered across time and space in some way that I come across different pieces at different moments in my own life yeah and I'm also sort of curious about this this idea of Kathleen Spencer's absent paradigm you project your own things into these kind of science fiction worlds that are complete but then Janelle Monet puts elements of their own life into their own work in a way that then has to become read back by an audience. So it feels like there's a a double projection happening. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And then there's that fantastic dissolution of certainty that goes along with that because you are no longer certain which elements are autobiographical in some way, which elements are part of the imagined life of Jane or part of the imagined life of uh, one of the other characters within the narrative. And you're never really given any indication who's speaking or what moment in time they're speaking from. So it's a really beautiful disillusion of the idea of a single fixed identity that a person might have and instead begins to talk about the way in which we are perhaps all multiple people depending on our particular emotional experiences or the moment you find us in or um, what we have what we imagine to have encountered and that to then see Janelle Monet's work in that way I think begins to allow us to think about identity politics in a really interesting way as well. It seems like a far more um, far more human thing to take people as fragmented incomplete works in progress that are always changing in some way than to just sort of portray them as fixed entities. Yeah and that the people we might imagine ourselves to be are as important to the way in which we live in the world as the person that you might assume that I am on first meeting me. This podcast and the following message are sponsored by Your Own Internal Projections. You're a busy person. You bring the world with you wherever you go. Why not project all of the thoughts and feelings accrued in your lifetime onto every work of fiction you encounter? 
Your own internal projections. Bring your own. As ever, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for coming on and um, and sharing your your wisdom, insights, and ideas, and uh, putting up with my terrible interviewing style as well. It's just been lovely to talk to you. And and I mean, every time I spend time in your company, I always come away just full of excitement about what could be. So thank you. <laughs> oh, well, it's been an absolute joy, and I must say that the you know the course that you're running and the podcast series just sound absolutely fascinating, and I am definitely going to be listening in myself as well. Uh, I think you've got some amazing people speaking, and I think it's a real joy to be part of. I've been making a note of the things that I've cited so that I can give you a more robustly referenced reading list than my half remembered names of people. <laughs> Thank you so much. What a considerate uh, interviewee on our podcast. That's, um, that's an incredible thing. That is the end of the interview and the end of this podcast. Thank you so much to Amy for taking the time to talk to me and creating a reading list during an interview. And thank you for listening all this way to the end. Until next time, take care.